Welcome to the Cartography Podcast. Today's episode is going to be about the concept of growth through stress. This is often referred to as anti-fragility or robustness or resilience. I think it's fair to say that uh, the thesis for this episode, if you want to think of it that way, is that properly applied stress leads to sustainable growth in all things, uh, whereas a complete lack of stress leads to atrophy and degeneration. The heart of the conversation here is what counts as properly applied stress. So there's a threshold where too much stress actually results in increased fragility. Definitely. And, and I mean, you know, we, we talk a lot on here about the idea of balance, uh, and this is uh, a, a huge one. You know, where, where this comes into play is uh, the idea that, of, of course, some stress, while it is beneficial in the long run, uh, too much can overwhelm a system and collapse it. Yeah, and before we get into it, I think it's important to point out that Taleb defines this idea. He, he refers to it as anti-fragility, and we've talked about this in many episodes previously, but his definition of anti-fragility is the ability to benefit from volatility and disorder. So like you could kind of think of volatility and disorder as stressors, basically. Right. So so I suppose maybe, maybe that would be a, a better kind of thesis is for us to uh, incorporate kind of Taleb's contribution there, uh, which is that that is those things which do operate in this way that we are describing here, in other words, that they experience sustainable growth through stress, those are the anti-fragile things and that not all systems function in that way. Right. So I think an interesting place to start might be to point out that growth through stress determines the boundary between what is organic and what is inorganic. So not just necessarily natural or biological systems, but organic ones. And I think the way that this works is sort of like a threshold where if something is biological, then that's going to be the most highly correlated to the growth through stress idea. But then you could get to something like like Taleb talks about the application to financial markets. So even though financial markets aren't necessarily organic, they're like a first derivative of human behavior, which is a biological process. So that would be maybe a first derivative. And then if you're analyzing like the way a corporation behaves within a market, maybe that's a second derivative. So like these are all going to correlate to the idea of stress through growth. But I think the way it functions is sort of like a spectrum where it gets less responsive as the further you get detached from natural systems or organic processes. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, I always kind of, um, try to control the impulse to, to buy into this very kind of social science oriented, uh, way of thinking, you know, this, these spectrums and this kind of idea that, uh, you know, there's, there's kind of some way to calculate the level of fragility or resiliency. I mean, uh, there may very well be, but I guess I, I wouldn't want to take that, that concept too literally except to say that uh, it just seems so clearly true, you know, in, in our daily experience that organic systems, i.e. those which are biological, you know, all these messy little living things with their tissues and, and fluids and all these things are very responsive, uh, very adept at dealing with stress and the uh, very constructed materialistic systems built out of things like, you know, essentially dead materials. I mean, I hate to make it sound so uh, sort of ethereal, but in a way, I think this is a very profound point that we're making, uh, which is that these constructed materials, uh, it's almost a, a very good way to generalize them is that they don't respond well to stress at all. You know, you take a, a anything, a structure made of uh, brick or wood or, or anything pretty much, and you expose it to any sort of uh, an adverse effect, a fire, for instance, or a, 
it just does nothing. It just kind of, it just sort of sits there and doesn't respond in any beneficial way at all. Uh, whereas a living thing, at the very least, does a better job. Right. So if you're thinking about if you're thinking about it again in terms of the spectrum that I just described, maybe a rock is all the way at at the left end of the spectrum, and then all the way on the right end of the end of the spectrum would be like a living animal. Maybe markets are like like I said, one derivative to the left of of biological systems. So then just to bring it back to that a little bit, and this is something that Taleb talks about often, but in 2008, I think the biggest takeaway from a financial markets perspective was that there were banks that were too big to fail. The free market is ideally supposed to be an anti-fragile mechanism that evolves to incorporate the the risk that's out there and, and represent it in the marketplace. But if you have one entity that's too big to fail, that terminally compromises the integrity of the entire system. So then it's it's no longer an anti-fragile system. And then the market is going to adjust and adapt around what is perceived to be safer than it should actually be in reality. Yeah, and I mean, essentially, when you have um, an actor like that, which is not functioning in, in the interest of that market uh, or of the individuals within that market, you know, you've, you've essentially, and this kind of refers back to our episode on, on scale, uh, you know, that that's where that becomes a problem is that you have someone who uh, no longer has skin in the game. As uh, as Nassim Taleb uh, constantly uses that phrase. By the way, I'm not entirely sure that we uh, introduced Nassim because we keep on referring to Taleb this, Taleb that, and I guess just for however few of our listeners may may not be familiar with him, uh, we're we're talking about the uh, the author and academic Nassim Taleb. Yeah, I think he got started as a derivatives trader, and then he made, from what I've heard, I think he made a lot of money during the financial crisis because he was actually betting on volatility erupting within markets. So one of the reasons he's so critical of too big to fail is that it kind of disrupts the risk premium within markets because it's not an organic marketplace anymore. Another way to think about this concept is through the idea of excessive regulation. So I think a good example of this would be, imagine that you're on a cliff in a, in a park somewhere, like a nature preserve. And it's a 300 foot cliff. And if you were just by yourself, you might be kind of careful to, to get close to the edge because you would understand inherently that there was a high level of risk involved in that situation. But if you go to a national park and it's really populated, and let's say they have a guardrail right at the edge of the cliff, there'll be a lot of people there that are right, right at the edge of the cliff that normally wouldn't be there. So what this does is fundamentally it causes an underestimation of the real risk that exists there. So imagine maybe like a big wind comes and blows a bunch of people off the cliff. Well, the railing allowed them to think that they were actually safer than they actually were. Right. And, and I guess you could even kind of say like maybe the railing does in fact provide some sort of real risk mitigation. But I think the, the, the important thing to point out, uh, and I'm not sure exactly how much Nassim Taleb really focuses on this angle, but uh, it, it'll affect the behavior, like that railing and that whole construct of turning, you know, the Grand Canyon, for instance, is a good example. This is exactly what it's like if you ever go there. Um, you know, turning that natural landscape into this kind of uh, constructed place that, that people are uh, incentivized to behave a certain kind of way in. What it does is it creates a false perception of the reality of that situation in those people's minds. And it'll get them to behave in ways that they would not if that railing weren't there. Right. And it's, and it's exactly the same thing in financial markets where you're essentially introducing inorganic intervention via the Fed or whoever, I mean, you could even tie this into market failure via referring to collusion and monopolies, oligopolies, but, but introducing inorganic behavior into the market 
actually makes it less resilient because you're making it more inorganic. Yeah, definitely. Another good example of this that occurs to me is the way that, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk in recent years, and it's, it, it really, the more I learn about it, it's amazing to me that I had never heard of this and, and never thought about this in the past, but just uh, the, the brutality and of some of the kind of long-term injuries and problems that uh, professional athletes endure, especially professional football players. And there's a lot of talk about how, you know, if you compare uh, American football players to uh, rugby players in, you know, the UK or Australia or wherever, they don't have anywhere near the same level of injuries, especially traumatic brain injuries. Uh, and one of the theories behind why that might be is because rugby is typically played without pads or helmets. And so uh, because of that fact, because of the very organic nature of that sport, instead of the comparatively kind of industrial nature of football, you know, covering people in pads and helmets the way that they do, uh, rugby players would obviously behave just a little bit more conservatively, wouldn't they? I mean, you're not going to hit someone as hard with, you know, your own skull or your own knee if it's not covered and padded. Yeah, and it's the same idea as applied to trading and financial markets. So another way that traders talk about this is they refer, they refer to something called the Fed put, which is basically the idea that if the stock market goes down enough that the, the Fed is going to step in and do whatever they have to do to prop up the markets. So then that, again, is like an intervention that causes the market to take that perceived intervention into effect and that changes the whole structure of the marketplace. So then somebody like Taleb might argue that the volatility is underpriced. But if you know that the Fed is going to intervene and boost the stock market, well, then people just aren't going to be buying volatility related products or pricing that into their models as much as they might have if that intervention didn't exist in the first place. Yeah. And, and I think to me, maybe like a larger point that I would want to make with this whole idea of, of intervention or overregulation as it relates to a market collapse or, or this idea of, of kind of market failure, you know, th these are all just kind of ways of saying, in my view, like that you're introducing actors into a system which aren't really a part of that system. You know, again, Taleb refers to this as skin in the game. And I really like that terminology because uh, when you introduce some kind of regulatory mechanism or uh, this kind of high-level monopolistic collusion that you're talking about, these are, uh, these are almost kind of like, uh, you know, I hate to use dramatic language, but almost kind of cancerous or parasitic entities in the context of a system. You know, they act against the interests of everybody else because somehow a mechanism has been created for them to do so. Yeah, a fascinating vector to take the conversation, I think, would be to, to relate it to the, the growth through stress idea to biological systems directly. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of, uh, I think, interesting parallels that we can draw. And I want to say, like, we're going to get into a lot of different things here that, you know, as I've said many times in the past, uh, it's important to understand that all we're trying to do is kind of uh, raise questions in you guys' mind. And there's so much research and specific kind of deep study that can be done into all these things. So please don't go uh, making any major decisions in your lives based on what you, what you hear on this podcast. This is just kind of stuff for you guys to think about. But, um, you know, what, one really interesting thing, and this is actually talked about in, in uh, Taleb's book, Anti-Fragile, as well, is, is the idea of homeopathy. Uh, which is uh, the practice of, uh, and, and there's more to it than this. Again, I'm no expert, but it's basically this idea of applying uh, a, a small amount of a toxic substance or an irritant of some kind uh, as a means of developing an immunity towards or even sometimes directly treating certain ailments. So one example is... Uh, like a homeopathic approach to uh, a skin irritation or some kind of a histamine outbreak uh, might be to uh, 
you know, give the individual a, a, a small uh, capsule full of some kind of trace amount of, of poison ivy uh, or, or, or histamine in, in some form. In other words, something that is it, somehow this reaction does appear to be very much a real thing. In other words, it appears to work. Uh, I know that I have experienced relative success with homeopathic remedies in the past, but I, I mean, in a sense, it's kind of the same logic as a vaccine in a way, right? Like you're, you're sort of introducing a small amount uh, of a certain kind of toxin or, you know, in the case of a vaccine, it's a virus or, uh, but the, 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 the logic of it being that the body will develop natural means of resistance against this. And so the best way to cure an ailment is actually to train the body as opposed to this kind of modern Western medical concept of, you know, trying to remove invading forces in, in a sense. Yeah, I think fundamentally the problem with the way that the West looks at medicine is due to the materialist philosophy in which they view it. I mean, I think it just naturally creates this vicious circle situation where they identify a problem and then can manufacture a, a vaccine or a drug to address that problem. And then from a business perspective, hopefully there's other problems that arise from that. And then they can manufacture another drug to address that problem. A big part of the problem, I think, with it is like this hyper categorization, you know, this tendency to, for whatever reason, view, uh, you know, certain systems within the body, you know, that that's kind of how you tend to see Western hospitals uh, designated through different, you know, uh, disciplines. So there's one doctor that studies, you know, one part of your body and another that studies another part of your body. Um, I don't know exactly. Uh, I would be interested to hear you explain how exactly, you know, a materialistic or empirical, you know, empiricist philosophy in general kind of leads to that hyper categorization, but it certainly seems to have, because uh, that to me seems like one of the biggest shortcomings and actually so obviously absurd in a way, like it's kind of amazing to me how little talk there is about like, why on earth would you just hyper focus on, uh, you know, I mean, to the molecular level, right? I mean, the standard of care, the standard of proof as to whether or not a medication is effective is a, uh, a molecular study of, of how that substance is affecting certain cells. But I mean, that just seems so obviously absurd when obviously you're, you're treating an entire human being, you know? Yeah, I think a great example of this, I don't know if you've ever listened to Hamilton Morris. I have. Yeah, I, well, I've listened to him on, uh, I've seen him on Joe Rogan's uh, show a few times, and his most recent episode was honestly one of my favorites that I've ever seen. <laughs> you know, I, I actually hated it. I, I, I detest the way that he, like, views drugs and, like, just the the materialist frame in which he views it, I think, perfectly encapsulates the problem. He definitely does take that perspective, yeah. But I kind of feel like, you know, y you have to put things in the context of the... <laughs> I mean, what do you want from the guy? He's, you know. But no, I think the mistake that he makes is like when he, when he talks about drugs, he's talking about isolating the specific psychoactive molecule in the drug so that it could be patented and sold for pharm pharmacological use. I mean, that's that's ultimately what he's doing. I mean, you, you could say he's like a paid pharma shill or whatever. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know about any of that, but like... That's where the market opportunity is, though, is to isolate these specific molecular compounds and then patent them and then sell them to the market. I know that's what a bunch of companies are doing now. So Compass Phar Pharmaceuticals is one of them. MindMed is another one. I think the two tickers for those are CMPS and MMEDF. But you could buy those on stock exchanges and they're public companies now trying to do this stuff. So I think these are going to come to the West in that form, like, within a few years, I think we'll start seeing that. I mean, I think there's some states where you could even get some of these treatments now, but I think just fundamentally it's a mistake to to isolate 
these compounds at the molecular level, you're actually foregoing the maybe unobserved positive externalities from the other substances or molecular compounds that are with the plant. So like you might not be able to measure a psychoactive effect in some molecule that's in the ayahuasca plant alongside the ayahuasca, but that could actually play an important role in, in the development of the experience that you have in a way that we just can't measure or don't completely understand at this point. And I, and I think perhaps you would say that like it is that materialistic perspective, which, which kind of leads to that, you know, very unsightful approach, right? Like they, they figure that they, they've isolated these effective compounds and if they just sort of, you know, introduce them in a pill form, then it'll have, uh, I mean, I guess the one dist- I completely agree with you that like it's a huge mistake to to take that that point of view, and and this is like what characterizes pretty much almost all of the problems in the modern world to me is just like this complete detachment uh, from reality based on this hyper zoomed in, hyper categorized perspective. But the one distinction I would make, and I've made this before, but I think it's so important to point out that. I do not see how a materialistic or empiricist perspective necessarily has to do that. The problem to me with these kinds of, and I don't know, you know, not, I'm not talking about Hamilton Morris specifically, but just with, with the, I mean, so many of us have just been taught this philosophy with, you know, we've taken it in with mother's milk and it's just the water we swim in. So I don't think most people can really be blamed for how psychopathic this outlook really is. But for the, the enlightenment philosophers who imposed this, you know, the, the problem with that attitude is the attitude. It's not the, the method. The method can be used to positive ends if it's used in context. It's the hubris of presupposing that you're going to be able to, you just come upon some, you know, uh, native group of people practicing a ritual using some kind of psychic, you know, some ayahuasca brew, etc. And you just assume, oh, well, I'll just, you know, separate the molecules and the effective compounds and put, use it in pill form. And that'll give me a similar effect. It's not that the problem there isn't materialism. It isn't the, the, the objective documentation of the compounds and the, it's, thinking you can do that. It's thinking you know. Yeah, and it's interesting to think about what percentage of like actually intelligent, so let's say corporate strategy analysts wouldn't recognize that it would be preferable to to do the shamanic ceremony in its natural element versus just this is the reality of the incentive structure in the marketplace that we have. And if we're going to introduce it, this is the way that it has to be done through our institutional structure. So, and it's also not to say that by isolating it and doing this less ideal distribution that you wouldn't get positive effects. Right. It could still be worth doing. That's kind of what I was saying earlier, where I was saying kind of cut the, you know, cut the guy. I mean, who knows, you know, it could be terrible, but it could also be a step in the right direction. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's also interesting to think about as related to homeopathy, that a lot of these shamanic tribes, Eliad was the guy who went, he, he was a French journalist. I think he was a journal. I'm not sure if he was a journalist or a doctor, but he, he went to America and South America and documented a lot of the way that the shamanic tribes used trance and different coming of age ceremonies. And he was like the first Westerner to really try to figure out like what, what exactly was going on in, in a lot of these ceremonies and cultures. But one of the things that I think is directly related to the homeopathy aspect here is that oftentimes in these shamanic ceremonies, they use these psychedelics, not only as a, as a coming of age ritual, but they, I mean, they would even, there's even tribes I've read about that give it to like I forget if it was like newborns or kids that were a couple years old and then they like do it every year or every few years to sort of introduce the child to psychedelic experience that is obviously fundamental to the culture that they have. But it's sort of like a, 
And I mean, it would depend upon the exact strategy that they used uh, with, within each tribe. But it's you could imagine how this is a, a growth through stress situation also. So if they're giving it to the kids, I would assume they're giving them a small amount as they're younger than increasing. You would the certainly hope I so. Can't, I can't say for certain that I, that I know that. But, but then on the other end of that, there's cultures that just use it purely as a coming of age ceremony where they don't have any of it. And then when they're in their early teens or late teens or whenever they're ready to transition into a, an adult role within the tribe, that they have like a true breakthrough experience and they give them a ton at once. And it brings up an interesting discussion of whether you're passing, like whether you're surpassing the the threshold or whether your brain could actually handle it and, and incorporate it. I mean, I'm sure it goes both ways for a variety of different people that take it, but it's interesting to think about. In the context of the coming of age ceremony, I mean, most Americans have probably uh, been exposed to terms like vision quest. You know, I mean, we uh, we know that uh, Native Americans, Native North Americans, you know, uh, that's ceremonies like that are, are a huge part of their traditional culture. But um, I think uh, it's fascinating to me the because because you know you mentioned that as part of the coming of age ritual, they often give them like a whole lot. It's definitely. Uh, intended to be a little bit of an ordeal similar to what most of us are familiar with, with the, the ayahuasca experience, uh, at least those of us who, who are familiar with it at all. But, um, you know, there's also oftentimes extended periods of fasting involved. I do think it's important that you, you made the distinction that this is in fact, uh, you know, when we say coming of age, like it's important to distinguish that you know, these kids who are living as hunter gatherers at the age of 12 and 13, like they're a little different than our 12 and 13 year olds, you know, they are very much considered ready to become adults at that point. I've also wondered uh, about the extent to which this because I've never heard of this being done with females. I don't know if this is something that that girls have to do as a coming of age practice as well. It's definitely for males. But that's kind of interesting as well. Yeah, I would imagine that that varies amongst the tribes again, but it, it really can't be understated how different the experience would be if you were gradually weaned into it from a young age and it was like a part of reality that you knew existed or that you could tap into versus growing up without any of it and then having it and then being blown away by it and then having to integrate that into like becoming an adult with, within the tribe. I mean, the difference in the difficulty of the integration, I think would probably categorize the, the difference between those, those two strategies. Yeah. It would be interesting to try and understand like major differences in cultures through tribes, like based on how they kind of go about doing this, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I know that uh, coming-of-age rituals uh, throughout tribal societies on, on multiple continents involve, uh, you know, significant ordeals. They're not always psychedelic in nature. I know that in Africa and the Middle East, you know, circumcision is a huge part of, of how this is expressed, uh, uh, which I personally, you know, find quite upsetting, but it... it it is something which is done uh, particularly with male children, but also uh, very often, especially in Africa, with, with female children. Um, and oftentimes what's most, you know, kind of mind-blowing and, and upsetting to me as a, as a parent about it is that it's done uh, to children when they're, you know, not the way that we do it in the West, like when they're newborns, but when they're transitioning to adolescence often. So, you know, they're very much trying to kind of um, uh, uh, mark the, the identity of individuals within their group with this process of, of, you know, suffering and endurance. So I actually went to Peru maybe f six years ago now, and I did ayahuasca down there with the, with the shaman and I went through the whole experience and it was, I mean, it was unbelievably wild. I mean, I'm sure we'll do an episode about this 
to, to cover it more in depth, but it really can't be understated how insane the experience is. And having not had anything near that level going into it, it's totally mind blowing. Totally mind blowing. So, so again, I think it just drives home the point that like you could, you could easily surpass the threshold on these on on a lot of things where it becomes difficult to. I could understand how it would be difficult to come back from from such a mind altering experience. Yeah, and and I mean, we'll we'll definitely have to kind of delve deeper into this whole subject matter in the future. I think it uh, it deserves an episode at the very least. But I, I think, it, you know, to relate this kind of psychedelics idea back to our main point here, I think that, you know, not, not only just from a direct point of view of like, hey, these, these kinds of experiences and stressors are, you know, ha- have the potential to improve your life, but also uh, in terms of kind of how we think about these things, I think Western culture has an extremely... Uh, you know, just a generally uninsightful view of, of not just psychedelics, but substances in general. And, uh, it, 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 it's a good thing to kind of stress yourself intellectually a little bit, you know, challenge yourself and ask critical questions, especially when you think about these things. Uh, because I think a lot of people have preconceived notions about what these substances are uh, you know, we're taught to refer to them with words like drugs, um, you know, and it's always good to ask yourself if, if there are other people who are kind of viewing these things differently, you know, what, what might that be about? Like maybe they're onto something. Yeah. I mean, just another positive externality from the experience that I could think about is the social and cultural community that is directly related to having had that experience. Like for example, if I was talking to a stranger and they told me that they had done it, I mean, we would feel a kinship with each other immediately. So like just in terms of being like the stress, shared stress across a group level could actually unite the individuals of the group in a way that isn't possible without that stressor. The commander of my unit in the army who was very much a complete psychopath, uh, used to always say something like, uh, you know, that we're going to bond through shared physical and mental pain and suffering. Uh, and, and so like talk like that is it, in, in the military is extremely common because it's, it's very, very well understood that, uh, I mean, that's just like the textbook, like, yeah, you just, you know, people go through things together and they bond over that. It's the whole Sebastian Younger, you know, wrote a whole book about it. Tribe. Another lens that I wanted to analyze this concept through is through the idea of iatrogenic effects. So the basic idea here is when, like an iatrogenic effect would be when a treatment causes more harm than benefit. So like another way to think about this would be the point at which the negative externalities outweigh the positive externalities. We were talking about before about materialism and empiricism a little bit. So I I think this is, you usually get the iatrogenic effects when you're using like an oversimplified, usually a materialist outlook in in diagnosing problems. So like if you're isolating individual problems without analyzing the root cause or the effects on the full system. And again, this could just be due to crude tools or, or, or weak analysis. But an example of this would be how chemotherapy is used to kill cancer, or more recently, how the they used ventilators to treat a lot of the people with COVID. So like, with COVID, the, the lungs aren't absorbing, I mean, as far as I understand, the, the, the lungs aren't absorbing the oxygen and the levels that they need to. So the solution that they thought of to this was, well, it's a lungs problem. So we need to introduce a ventilator to, to help the patient breathe. But then ultimately, this would weaken the person's lungs and they would collapse and then they would die from that. So, so at that point, the treatment caused more harm. Yeah, very well, well put. I think the way that I would define iatrogenic effects, like in my mind, is that they are the cost of lack of insight. They're the cost of failing to 
uh, grasp what exactly the problem is that one is trying to solve. So with your ventilator example, you know, it, it's such a perfect and really very, very tragic example of, of exactly how this works uh, because they thought the problem that they were trying to solve was to make sure that no matter what happened, that people's lungs were pumping oxygen. When in fact, the problem that they were trying to solve was to make sure that people didn't die. And, uh, you know, they, they failed to, <laughs> to, to solve that problem um, because they lost sight of the actual objective. Yeah, you know, we've talked about this before in that I think it's not inherently materialism or empiricism that is the problem per se, but it, it's more the way that they're used to optimize for specific variables that the, the crude tools and strategies that we use to actually assess and analyze data just doesn't provide us with the full picture. And if it did, it, it would reveal the true interconnectedness of all of these systems. And I think it's the, the, the true shortcoming of materialism is not being able to take a step back and recognize the direction that it's going, which, as I said, it, it is revealing the, the connectedness of all things. But instead, it it's at least used in practice and through our institutional structures to isolate for specific variable, variables to sell specific products or whatever. I mean, you could get into how it's directly tied into consumerism and capitalism. But, but yeah, I think you really just have to have an ability to, with any philosophy, to, to recognize where it makes sense to take it and get a 30,000 foot view of the situation and not get too hyper-focused. But there's something about materialism and empiricism that forces, that, that lends itself to this optimization type, optimization strategies that, can be used by institutions, usually at top-down levels and at scales that just don't make any sense by the time it's actually applied. Definitely. There's definitely something inherent to materialism and empiricism. And I think a big part of it has to do with the technological developments that have kind of coincided with it and in some part allowed for it. The very fact that they have the technology to now uh, describe and measure things at the micro level allows them a, uh, a language to speak about things in non-human terms, you know? Uh, it, 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 I just don't really know how that would have been done in the age before microscopes. I mean, just like look at this whole COVID nightmare that we're living through with the essential problem that we're all dealing with right now is the fact that it has been taken as a matter of course by the whole society that we're now responsible for the transmission of our germs. You know, that there are these invisible little, and I mean, we know, of course, empirically that there are these microorganisms, right? What, what is absurd, of course, is the way it's taken as a given that if you're exposed to a certain microorganism that you're going to get that disease, even though, of course, it's even admitted, you know, within the scientific community, that's not the case. It's not as though anyone's trying to deny the existence of immune systems. I think another thing that not necessarily materialism or empiricism reveals is this, again, this idea of optimization. And it kind of lends itself to what you see a lot of the, the tech elites pushing now is this idea of minimizing suffering as an explicit goal. But, but, this goes in complete contradiction to the the growth through stress idea, because if you're minimizing suffering, then conditionally you're minimizing growth. In philosophy, at least, this is called negative utilitarianism is the idea. So like the way they describe it is that the primary goal is to minimize aggregate suffering, and then a secondary goal is to maximize aggregate happiness. But this philosophy does not account for the stress through growth or growth through stress idea at all. And I think it's also a really good example of the point you were making earlier about how there is something inherent to the nature of materialism itself that seems to lead to these incredibly hyper-focused, uninsightful ways 
of seeing things, uh, the, the, the very need to put the problem into that kind of formulaic language, I think strikes most socially normal people as absurd on its face. Like that there's a, there's a kind of instinctual reaction, like what's wrong with this person? Why are they, why do they have to like break this problem down into these very, uh, kind of non-human terms? Uh, and, and I think actually getting back to what I was trying to describe earlier, Jay, I was talking about like how the technological framework that we now have is a big part of what allows for this. Another thing, and this also relates to technology, is the way that media kind of portrays materialism and empiricism, not in an empirical way, but in an extremely mystical and religious way. And I think that is a big part of what leads to this, uh, it, it really is this religious zeal in the mind of these, these people who promote this kind of a hyper-focused philosophy. Uh, Peter Singer comes to mind, maybe some of our listeners will know about him in the context of this negative utilitarianism. He's, he's an Australian academic, which has become... Um, pretty famous for talking a lot about this, but, uh, you know, it's just such an obvious mistake to assume that you can kind of reduce the human experience to some kind of, uh, uh, matrix of suffering and versus non-suffering. And, uh, it's just anti-human. One academic, which is you know, pretty high profile, pretty popular for promoting this idea of negative utilitarianism and, um, and also effective altruism is also a big phrase that is thrown out there a lot as the Australian academic and author Peter Singer. Um, you know, it's really just another, in my opinion, very egregious and uh, kind of upsetting example in a lot of ways of this just loss of focus on the relevant reality, which is the kind of human experience uh, in, in favor of this utilitarian calculus that presumes to try and break human beings down into categories and try and understand them on, in some kind of a pseudo-mathematical way. Uh, it's totally absurd. Yeah, I think also as it relates to technology, the question becomes how do you determine what suffering is necessary versus what suffering is unnecessary? And I mean, we, we both worked in the technology industry for a little while, and anybody who's worked there understands how crude the technology that we're using is. I mean, all of this stuff is based on effectively if and or commands written into the code. And I mean, they could talk about machine learning, but I mean, like we, we worked with machine learning systems and like they were not, <laughs> I would say they were not nearly like not even close to as effective as they're marketed or people think they are. Yeah. That's because people are given this absolutely religious story to, to, you know, the, the marketing, the audio visual marketing of these things truly does make them seem mystical, omniscient, and all powerful. I think a lot of that is just a ploy to appeal to investors and to boost like the valuations of these tech companies. I think that's what a lot of it is. And then a lot of it for sure. It is baffling to me though. Like when you see people who work with AI systems or machine learning systems who are then, well, I, maybe it's not baffling in that they're, they have a direct personal interest and incentive in drumming up the importance or effectiveness of what they're working on. But I mean, it seems to me like they really do believe that these tools are effective, which to me as having used them is, completely insane. I mean, there's so the average person just doesn't understand how crude these systems actually are. Yeah, relative to the perception which is created in the media, they it's pretty laughable. Like the whole thing is pretty silly. But I also think, I mean, if if what you're talking like when you say the people that believe these things, I mean, if you're talking about like some of these CEOs like Elon Musk, <clears throat> you know, I think that uh it, it 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 sort of takes a little bit of a departure from reality to be a person like that. Yeah, I think you know maybe I'm being a little bit unfairly stereotypical, but uh, I think if you're going to try and uh, create projects of that scale, you kind of have to have a little bit of that uh, 
that mindset. But I guess I'm just saying, like, I, I'm not sure, like, how many people really uh, even know enough about it to have an opinion, you, you know? And, and so, uh, like, I, I guess I just don't really think that people who think like that, like Elon Musk, in a way, doesn't really strike me as someone who has a lot of insight into how the whole thing works. And, you know, he might know a lot about, like, whatever project he's working on. But I just don't think he's like a 30,000 foot view kind of guy. Right. Yeah, I definitely agree. This relates pretty directly to um, understanding this in a military and military history sort of a context as well. Uh, there are extensive examples throughout history of, um, you know, w wars and military operations where uh, when they first get going, most of the combatants involved are you know extremely unexperienced and unsuccessful they often suffer uh disproportionate casualties you know to casualties which are kind of uh, unacceptable proportionate to the uh the value of the operations you know that 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 those casualties are sustained in the process of uh but, you know, there are a lot of pretty high-profile examples of this. I mean, uh, probably, I mean, if any of you guys have seen uh, the really excellent, by the way, film with uh, George C. Scott, uh, where he plays General Patton. It's just called Patton. But uh, they they document, it's actually relatively historically accurate, and it's really good, uh, a good film in a lot of ways. But one of the cool things about it is that it, it's pretty accurate as far as I know. But one of the things that they document was uh, at the outset of the U.S. Army's involvement in World War II, this would have been uh, around 1942, uh, you know, before major operations against the Germans in Europe, the U.S. Army was uh, invading North Africa, which uh, the Germans had a, a pretty massive uh, theater of operations there. And uh, initially were, were famously very unsuccessful uh, the U.S. Army was, uh, but kind of after a while of of you know a, a string of defeats and and all these things, they sort of they got their shit together, if you will, and uh, and were extremely successful. And and the the German forces were were pushed out of North Africa uh, entirely with, within a matter of months. Uh, you know, there's a, a very similar paradigm again going a little bit farther back in in U.S. history. If we look at the Civil War, uh, you know the the union side or the union military uh, military industrial complex which it was really the first in american history uh when the war really got going about you know two years in uh i mean it was uh they were relatively unstoppable you know that they ha were so militarily superior but uh it took quite a significant period of time and a few pretty disastrous defeats before they were able to achieve that uh, level of of sort of unit cohesion and effectiveness. A big part of that had to do with them having uh, been composed of largely volunteer units whose uh, whose service contracts would routinely end. Uh, there were probably a lot of different theories you could come up with, but the point is, by the time it got going, you know, the Union Army was unambiguously uh, the dominant of, of the two sides. Uh, I could come up with, with lots of other examples about this, but the point being, you know, military units, just like any other organizations, uh, or any other organism, social organism, if you want to call it that, you know, the extent to which it is related to that organic form, um, you know, stress can make it better. It can make it stronger. It can make it more cohesive more adept at responding to challenges, uh, more adept at, you know, communication within that system. All of these things uh, are, 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 are mechanisms which need to be forged, you know, through, through experience. Uh, human psychology is a, is a very complicated thing, and it requires, you know, true kind of the, the kind of bonding, the kind of social bonding that it, that is required in order for a group 
to function as a truly cohesive unit. Uh, that's not something that you can just create. You know, and that has to happen organically. One caveat that I wanted to add here, and it's especially relevant to the military, I think, and, and military strategy, is that like top-down decision-making doesn't necessarily allow for local volatility to, to be recalibrated and added into the game theory. So did you have any experiences in the military that like, like, did they, were they aware of this or, or how did it actually function? You know, um, I mean, I, I've said it before. I am very critical of a lot of aspects of my military experience. There's, you know, um, it's definitely a been there, done that sort of thing, but there are aspects of it, which I will always kind of think of very fondly. And one of them is that at least within the U.S. context, uh, it seems that the military is one of the few places I've ever been in American society where they really understand how human psychology works, and they just like really understand how to, how to make people want to do things. Um, and a, a big part of that, so so all of that to say. You'd be surprised at, at what a sophisticated understanding there actually is uh, of these dynamics that we're talking about. And absolutely, uh, sort of decentralization of command is a huge, it's a huge aspect of what you would assume is a totally hierarchical structure, which it is. I mean, don't, don't let me make it sound as though the military is some kind of an egalitarian system. It by no means is. But there is a deeply ingrained understanding at all levels of command that, it, you know, all things being equal, the best people to make the call are the ones who are right there where the battle is happening. And uh, that, that kind of thinking definitely filters down into... Uh, I would say throughout the military, the U.S. military at least, which is what I could speak to at all levels. Referring back to uh, you know the, the example I made earlier of the U.S. Army's campaign in Germany, one of the, uh, you could argue at least, one of the reasons they were having such a tough time there initially is because they were up against one of the uh, best, basically, generals that the, the German army had, uh, General Rommel, who was famous for this kind of decentralized command strategy. Uh, and in fact, the, the German army, uh, both in, in World Wars I and II, was, was really renowned for this kind of, I forget the terminology, uh, Dan Carlin does an excellent job of describing this in his, uh, in his uh, uh, series on, on World War I. But this kind of philosophy of decentralized command and providing subordinate commanders with uh, lots of decision-making capacity in certain contexts is vital to success in the military context. How do you think the military communicated these ideas to the actual soldiers? Like, did they use archetypes or symbols or how did it actually work in practice? I mean, the military is, for all intents and purposes, you know, a religious institution. It psychologically functions in exactly that way. Uh, it is full of archetypes, symbols, stories, uh, proverbs, sayings. It, it, it's almost to the point that, it, well, not almost, I mean, it really is referred pretty regularly, uh, referred to pretty regularly as its own language. Um, you know, so, so, I mean, everything from the process of, uh, basic training or boot camp, depending on your service, uh, you know, which is just this explicit kind of operant conditioning, uh, very much according to the behaviorist model, you know, they are, it is a, a process of, uh, kind of repetition of certain activities that are just meant to condition individuals into behaving a certain way. Uh, at a certain point, you kind of transcend that, and I think that's what's so interesting about how sophisticated, you know, modern militaries are. They they have this so well understood. Like you can't just keep people in that operant conditioning mode 
where you're pounding, you know, repetition into their brains. Like most people are a little bit more sophisticated than that. So you have to kind of tell them stories. You have to create a, a mythology around why it is that all of this is happening. Uh, and it's not, it doesn't seem to be very important, you know, what the content of that mythology is. Really, it's that everyone around is promoting it and agrees with it. And it's that social cohesion, which is achieved by having a dominant culture. Now, you would hope that it's a good one. I mean, that's really the key with all of this, right? I, I, uh, I think there's a lot of focus on the, the value of this you know, this model of having a dominant culture, right? And how we kind of, we have that nature. We need that as human beings. I get that. But can it be a good one? It's interesting to think that you could just have objectively worse cultures. I mean, like you could have traditions, cultures or religions that get passed down that become somewhat anti-fragile over time by taking in new information and taking in stressors and then incorporating them into the culture or religion or whatever, and then it evolves as time goes on. Fundamentally, that's the difference between Catholicism and Protestantism, is the Protestant idea of sola scriptura is that it's just everything is according to the Bible, just according to the written word, and, and that's what you have to go by. So, so that actually prevents the evolution of the religion, so then it's effectively just making it fragile by the way that it's structured. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, the example I'm going to give, and I realize I'm probably going to offend a few people and I really don't care, but uh, the, you know, the practice of circumcision in uh, several major religions, and as I was saying earlier, tribal practices, in my mind, I can't think of a better example of something which, uh, you know, uh, I'm not even gonna go, going to get into speculating on which purposes it may have once served. But uh, something like that has endured for generations, uh, and, and I don't entirely think most people who do it understand why, uh, <laughs> and yet there it is. Whether it's a culture or an individual, it's all relative to, to the scope that you're operating on. So like the way that you change your individual behavior might be more pliable than the way Christianity evolves over time. Like there, there, there's a rigidity component that is different at different levels of scope. I think there's a lot to that idea in general that you were talking about of the, uh, you know, the Catholic critique of Protestantism, um, you know, because, and I, you could relate this to a lot of things. I mean, to me, what comes to mind is kind of uh, the, the difference between the cultures and oftentimes religions, by the way, of uh, of uh, oral cultures versus written cultures, you know, or which often tends to correlate to things like uh, hunter gatherers versus, you know, agricultural societies. Agricultural societies obviously tend to be the ones with writing, although not always. But, um, you know, I think that there is a, there were, I mean, certain philosophers, apparently Socrates uh, openly critiqued, you know, not necessarily condemned, uh, you know, or said that uh, it shouldn't be used, but was critical of writing, uh, and and its its potential to kind of affect human relations and human discourse. Uh, you know, I mean, even simpler things like its effect on people's memories is is one of the things that apparently Socrates was concerned about. But I think there's a, a clear dynamic where you can. I mean, I'm no expert on hunter-gatherer societies, but you would just have to imagine that at that scale, uh, they would be much more adept at dealing with uh, just about anything that comes up which is outside of their normal framework of understanding. Uh, and of course, you know, as I'm saying this, maybe the word anti-fragile or resilient is, is popping into your minds because that's um, kind of where I'm going with this is that, you know, a, a model or a culture which is more suited towards modes of communication which allow for that kind of resilience is obviously going to be more resilient. You know, if you 
uh, have a, a, an oral culture you can imagine would have a practice of discussion of just about everything that they're going to do as opposed to a written culture, which is probably going to rely on things like laws. You know, and I, and I wonder if we're, now I'm not necessarily saying that I want to live in a society without any laws, any written laws whatsoever. I, I haven't exactly like delved into this deeply enough to know where I come down on that. But I would say that it just seems very obvious to me, and yet I wonder how conscious most of us are that something so fundamental to our culture and our lives as law is really kind of could not exist in that way if we did not write stuff down, if we just, you know, if we just had an oral culture. It's interesting to me. Yeah, I think it's very subject to the local environment in which you're analyzing it. So it's it's not just a question of scale, but also just of like locality and environment. So like, for example, I think what what would be considered a stressor in one location that might surpass the threshold for growth um, in another location could stimulate growth in the first location. So I think one example that comes to mind is the the this recent snowstorm in Texas. So if they wanted to become more resilient, they would incorporate the building practices in areas where it snows more so that grid won't get locked up, right? But the problem though, is that, is it actually worth the cost to change the entire infrastructure just because of one freak storm that could occur? So like there's a point at where a stressor isn't worth being incorporated into the culture. I mean, I think this is, this could also be true of, of religion and tradition. Like we were just talking about, like there could be local phenomena that stress the system that don't make it into the tradition just because it, for one reason or another, wasn't important enough to actually make it. Well, and I mean, if you're talking about a tradition, which is uh, being recorded in some way, like being written down, I mean, there are a lot of things that I think are so fundamental to a local existence that they probably wouldn't even think to write them down, you know? Uh, it was always interesting for me to consider, you know, just the, the, the kind of cultural relativism of things. I mean, I hate to invoke that terminology, but uh, things like, uh, like uh, the Bible, for instance, you know, the Judeo-Christian view of uh, kind of the, the creation of the world, uh, you know, you consider that it is all told, the Genesis story, it, the framework they use is uh, a week of seven days and, you know, suns rising and setting. It occurs to me that for someone who lives uh, near the Arctic Circle, uh, you know, perhaps obviously before modern communication and technology and all this, you know, that kind of framework wouldn't really make the same kind of sense to them. Um, and, and so something even as fundamental as that, I think human beings really kind of live in just about any, any environment that there is. And um, those kinds of things can be very instructive to me. I wanted to end the episode sort of where we started with the idea that growth through stress determines the boundary between what is organic and what is inorganic. So to tie it into scale, it, it really depends on the perspective that, that you're looking at life in general. So like you could look at life as an anti-fragile strategy where the process of evolution is a strategy to spread out all of the different organisms and life forms to maximize the chance that, that life will continue to exist. I think maybe the, the point that you're trying to make here, Jay, and this is at least from my perspective, where I, uh, where I get to with this is there seems to be something inherent to the way that biological and kind of organic life works that promotes the things that it does. I, that's a terrible way to word it, but I, I guess this nature, this incredibly resilient and responsive nature of biological life, to me, seems to indicate that that is its purpose of existence. And there's a very powerful lesson in that to me when I ask myself questions about 
whether or not it makes sense to uh, to you know rely perhaps too much on systems which are not organic or biological or at least somehow derivative of that. I think again this brings up the point that you should want to live your life as integrated with natural processes as possible because we're not necessarily able to measure all of the positive externalities that naturally arise within organic systems. Yeah, and, and so I guess what I would say in response to that is, yeah, I, I, I think that it's, it's a matter of understanding that there are certain paths which have already been laid out for you and of a kind of developing the wisdom and humility to realize that uh, it has just sort of been figured out better than anything that you're going to figure out. And that's really what living in line with nature, at least to a degree, is all about.